Hey there, this is Lieutenant Stockwell. If you're enjoying this audio fiction adventure of that bonehead, August Reardon, why not support the author and pre-order a copy of his latest Reardon book, Geisha Confidential? Follow the link in the episode description. Geisha Confidential by Mark Coggins. Stockwell says buy it. The Immortal Game is a San Francisco Chronicle Book of the Year and is available in ebook and trade paperback wherever books are sold. In this podcast, it's read by author Mark Coggins. Learn more about Mark and his other novels at markcoggins.com. Chapter 10 In the Key of G I managed the trip home without reenacting any more highlights from Three Stooges films. It was 6.20. I dumped a can of spaghetti into a pot, mixed in a can of pinto beans, threw in a dash of hot sauce, heated the mixture until it burped like molten lava, then ladled the whole mess onto three slices of sourdough toast. I accompanied the meal with two cans of beer and a classic 1937 Roy Eldridge Vocalon reissue. I showered, changed, and killed the rest of the time before leaving for my 9.30 gig by pressing ice packs to the side of my face. It had swollen up like was packing a three-plug cha. I was subbing that night for the bass player of a jazz quartet called Distant Opposition. Their regular bassist, Leo Rand, was down in L.A. doing some studio work on a breakfast cereal jingle. Most of the gigs I got were like that. One night stands where I subbed for a bassist in a regular group, or played in a pickup and sambo put together to support a big name who was in town for one show. Distant Opposition played classic jazz without a lot of electric amplification. That meant I was taking my wife to the show, wife being the slang term among jazz musicians for a string bass. I lugged the bass down the street and loaded it into the Galaxy 500, in a specially designed rack I had installed in place of the back seat. I had to crank the starter four or five times before the car turned over. When it did, I pointed it down Hyde in the direction of a South of Market dive called In the Key of G. You can count on two hands the number of clubs in San Francisco that regularly feature jazz. In the Key of G was among the hardiest, but it lacked an atmosphere, acoustics, seating capacity, and interior illumination. It made up in a dedicated cadre of patrons, a commitment to quality acts, and a peerless bartender named Slim. I parked my car in 8th, next to the converted brick warehouse that was home to the club, and navigated my base down the dingy concrete steps of the entrance on Mena. A stifling amalgamation of cigarette smoke, rowdy bar talk, clinking glasses, and the smell of beer assailed me as I stepped through the doors of the basement room. The space was long and narrow, with a stage wedged in the back against a bare brick wall. Along the right was a chromium metal bar that looked like an examining table at the morgue. A set of bar stools with more duct tape than upholstery went with it and a random collection of cocktail tables, some round, some square, some wood, some metal, all of them wobbly, was arranged in front of the stage. The crowd was just as eclectic. 
There were the cool South of Market types, the young women in black synthetic clothing with clunky shoes and ridiculous purses like miniature backpacks, and the guys in jeans with heavy leather boots, wide leather belts, and tight short sleeve shirts. Hair dyed in probable shades of red, blonde, or purple was common among both sexes, as were tattoos and piercings of all kinds in every conceivable place. One woman seated at the bar had enough loops in her ear to hang a shower curtain. Standing shoulder to shoulder with these were the well-heeled yuppies who worked in the financial district downtown. Men dressed in Italian suits with the latest designer tie selected by their wives talked about IPOs, NASDAQ, venture capital, and the internet, all while making double-arm gestures that could be used to wave in a jet. Leavening the crowd were a handful of inner-city blacks who showed up to support Cornelius Crawford, distant opposition's outstanding alto sax player, a hometown hero who was on a trajectory for greater glory. There were even a few ordinary schmoes who came to get out of the house, have a drink, and hear some live jazz. Using my bass as a shield, I waded through the crowd until I came abreast of the bar. Slim was standing behind it, straining a bright pink concoction from a shaker into a glass. He was wearing his usual white shirt and red bow tie. He was balding, bony, and had an Adam's apple so prominent it waggled his tie when he swallowed. Got your pink lady right here, August, he boomed. Straight up, just like you like it. Sorry, I only drink those when I play my concertina and yodel. I don't think the guys would go for that tonight. Suit yourself. I hauled the bass the rest of the way up to the stage and set it down carefully on its side. The other musicians were already there getting set up. I shook hands all around and thanked Saul Hodges, the band leader and drummer, for giving me the gig. I pulled out a square of carpet I carry around to anchor the bass on slick surfaces and plopped it down and back, between the piano and the drum kit. Then I took the bass out of its zipper bag and wiped off the strings with a rag. As I began tuning up, I heard all the usual grousing that goes with musicians on club dates. Cornelius Crawford wasn't happy with the reed in his mouthpiece. At first it was too dry, then too wet. Tristan Sinclair, the pianist, didn't like the house piano for the same reason all pianists hate house pianos. It was out of tune. Hodges was having trouble squeezing his ride cymbal in next to me, and the tendonitis in his elbow was acting up. Nick Dundee, the trumpeter, said the valve action on this horn wasn't smooth enough, and was busy dousing the valves with oil. Hodges passed around a rumpled cocktail napkin where he'd written the set list. I didn't pay much attention to anything but the first tune, because I knew he would call each one before we started, and he never stuck to the list anyway. The first tune was a bouncy, up-tempo standard by Charlie Shavers called Undecided. When we were ready to roll, Hodges gave Slim the high sign, and Slim flicked on a mic he kept behind the bar. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to In the Key of G!, Tonight we are featuring the best in classic jazz from a group of young lions who know how to shake it up and pour it. Please give a big round of applause to Saul Hodges' quintet, Distant Opposition, featuring Cornelius Crawford on alto sax. The applause started in the middle of Slim's intro and crested when he got to Crawford's name. A number of people in the audience shouted, Crawdad, Crawdad. The house lights went down and spots came on. Looking back into a smoky tunnel of light with my heart pounding and my fingers slick and slippery on the strings, I felt a rush of excitement like I was standing on top of a high dive. Hodges counted off a tempo and cued Sinclair, who played an introduction on the piano. At the end of four bars, the rest of us dove in. Crawford and Dundee led us through a chorus of the melody in unison, four sections of eight bars, the third being the bridge. Things were a little ragged at the start, and Dundee blew one outright clam. Crawford came in smoothly after the melody and played two choruses of a jubilant solo. 
He got a big round of applause when he stepped back, and Sinclair followed him with two more courses on the piano. Dundee came next and more than made up for the clam, straightening his back like a limbo dancer, horn jabbing at the ceiling as he hit the high hard ones. He also earned a solid round of applause. The bass and drum don't always solo, but when I looked over to Hodges near the end of Dundee's, he yelled, trade fours, which meant that he and I were to alternate with four bars each. I kicked it off and resisted the temptation to play upstairs, since I knew Hodges was a traditionalist and liked the bass to sound like one with deep, fundamental notes. When I passed it to Hodges, he showed off some of the excellent brushwork he'd made his name with, and then it was right back to me. We went back and forth like that until it was time to go back to the melody, or so I thought. I'd forgotten that Shaver's arrangement had a shout chorus at the end. I fluffed several notes until I dropped the melody and picked up with the shout. Fortunately, the horns were growing great guns by then, and the only one who noticed was Hodges, who gave me a dirty look. We closed with a rousing turnout and got a nice ovation from the crowd. More cries of crawdad rose above the applause, but surprisingly, someone also called my name. I looked down into the audience and found Jody sitting by herself at a table in the third row. She had traded her neoprene skirt for a simple black leotard and jeans, but she still had enough sex appeal to make a speech therapist talk in tongues. She waved enthusiastically when she caught my eye, and I waved back. Dundee saw the exchange and twisted around to give me a good look of him simulating fellatio with his trumpet. That's some nice skank you got there, Reardon, he said, grinning like a baboon. Why don't you fix me up with that at the break? Sorry, Dundee. She doesn't like guys who blow their own horn. Ha! Can it, said Hodges harshly, then called out, Blue Monk. Blue Monk was a 12-bar blues number by Thelonious Monk. Hodges didn't care for most of Monk's compositions, because he regarded them as self-indulgent and too dissonant-sounding. In fact, he had once said the sheet music for Monk's tunes looked like flies had walked across the paper. Blue Monk was different, though. It was an approachable, straight-ahead blues number. Dundee scrambled to get the mute on his horn, and then Hodges called out the slower blues tempo. Piano, bass, and drums came in together and laid down the theme immediately. For me, the melody to Blue Monk had always evoked the image of a drunk stumbling home late at night. The front line joined us after the bridge, Dundee's muted horn dominating and giving a real blue mood to the piece. At the end of the chorus, Hodges went into a soft drum press and yelled for me to walk it. I played a fluid, constant progression that provided a sort of rhythmic propulsion for the music. Dundee took the first solo and blew directly at Jody. I had to admit that he sounded great, and I didn't get any argument from the audience. Dundee looked back at me when he was finished and stroked his goatee with a wise-ass expression, as if to say, Beat that. Crawford took the next course, and if anything, played better than Dundee. Sinclair followed with a credible solo on piano, but probably could have used more left hand, which was a complaint I'd heard about him before. Hodges called for me next, and whether because I felt I was competing with Dundee for Jody's attention, or was inspired by the image of the drunk, I gave one of my better solos, a moody, resonant, shambling kind of thing. It provoked table pounding and shouts of, oh yeah, from the audience. Dundee looked back to stick his tongue out, and I responded by moving the bass up a few inches. We stepped cleanly back into the head of the melody then, with all the players on board. Crawford came to the front and we followed his lead on an improvised ending that sounded rehearsed. It was nicely done. We played five more tunes in the set, closing with Sonny Sitt's Loose Walk. The house lights went up and after I wiped down the bass and laid it carefully on the stage, I went over to join Jody. Dundee was already at the table leering over her, but I said, Amscray, chumperoo, and elbowed him off to the side. He's cute, said Jody after I sat down. What's his name? Joseph Mengele, 
We call him the Doc. Nice try, August. I know about Ostowich, and that's not something you should be joking about. I'm sorry. You're right. His name is Nick Dundee. But pay him no mind, because there's a strong tradition in jazz that the bass player gets all the women. Well, I'm not exactly what you would call a traditional girl. What happened to your face? Funny you should ask, I said, and signaled the waitress for a round of drinks. A couple of friends of yours entertained themselves today by taking swipes at it. I told her about my encounter at the power station and the chase with the guy in the sweatshirt without mentioning the photo in his wallet. So what's the story with this Chuck character? She sipped from her drink and then shrugged. There's not much to tell. He works in security, just as you were told. His last name is Haystrup, and he played pro ball in Pittsburgh for several years. That's all I know about him, except he's a real hard ass. He's not somebody you want to tangle with, August. I've already ascertained that through independent research. But what's his connection to Terry McCullough? Why did he stick his beak into it? I don't know that he has any special connection to Terry, except that he works at the power station. Frankly, it doesn't surprise me that he was alerted when he went there. From what you told me, it doesn't sound like you came across as a very credible client. You would have done better to present the card I gave you and simply ask to talk to Terry. Yeah, maybe. What about this other joker, Nagel? What do you know about him? Nothing. Why would I? No particular reason, I said, except maybe the picture he had of you sitting on the beach playing the ukulele in your birthday suit. Jody reddened slightly. Oh, that one. It's from the spread and pussyfoot I did a couple of years ago. Anybody with 595 can get a copy. So you're saying it's just a coincidence that Nagel had one too? Yep, an embarrassing coincidence, but still a coincidence. Okay, one last question. Shoot, what's it going to take to get you to come up on stage and join us for a tune in that same getup? Jody reached across the table to tweak my nose. A lot more than 595. A lot more. Well, thanks for coming. It was great to have the support and make Nick Dundee jealous as hell. Jody left before the second act. The band was smoother and looser, both because we were warmed up and because we'd all had a drink or two or three during the break. We did a half dozen more tunes and closed with Perdido from the Ellington Songbook. I hung around for a time to shoot the breeze, but got bored with it after Slim closed the bar and Saul Hodges started to tell the hoary old story about the time Buddy Rich cursed out his band at the top of his lungs in the middle of a gig. I said my goodbyes and carried my bass up the stairs to the street. Outside there was a dense fog, and the air felt cold and damp on my face after the close atmosphere of the club. You have been listening to The Immortal Game, a San Francisco Chronicle Book of the Year. Find it in ebook and trade paperback wherever books are sold. In this podcast, it's read by author Mark Coggins. Learn more about Mark and his other novels at markcoggins.com.